So we're teasing our second episode. We have a drug kingpin. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. okay. All right. I just want to make sure I get the terminology right. But <laughs> but it started with cocaine. Then we moved to ecstasy. Now entrepreneur, right? So yeah. we tell the story. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun. I uh, think it'll be really good. That was fucking great. <laughs> episode of Fuck You Friday, uh, where we win on Fridays. I'm your host, Wynn Silberman. This is my co-host, Casey LeBlanc. And I'm really, really excited today with our guest, uh, Louis Siskin. Um, it's going to be a fun, uh, a fun interaction, I hope. Um, but, you know, prior to uh, us kind of getting into you and, and uh, seeing what we have to offer, uh, Casey, I'd like to just take a moment and uh, sit back and reflect on why uh, Fuck You Friday came about, what it's about, um, and then we'll kind of spring from there. Yeah, so the concept actually comes about many years ago, playing sports, and it's the idea of Friday in the masses being a day where people are getting excited about the weekend. And so flipping that on its head, being aggressive on Fridays and doing those little things that can really separate yourself on a day that's typically uh, looked at as a third day of the weekend, and especially in San Diego, right? So we're, we're down in San Diego, and, and I feel like a lot of people have this beach mentality. And so we're, we're looking at it like, how do I be aggressive? How do I... What do I do on Fridays to make, make a difference? That's great. And, and we, what you talk about, how do we win? Yeah, yeah, that's really important. That's really important. And, and speaking of winning and, and introductions, um, you know, Lewis, how would I, you know, if I was just in a, a regular room and trying to introduce you, how, how would I do it? I mean, uh, what do I say? You've, done, you've been through so much. You do so much. What are, what are, how would you like to be introduced if, if, if someone was to ask you, how should I introduce you? What would you say? What do you do? Who are you? I don't know. That's a pretty good thing. It's first half of my life, I wasn't, you couldn't introduce me to anybody. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, even if you wanted to, you just couldn't. And then for about 12 years, even if I wanted you to, you couldn't because I was locked up in prison. And yeah. then since I came home, I guess, you know, it's, it's kind of like what you guys say about Fuck You Friday. How do you capitalize on other people's mentality about taking the day off? For me, it was being you know, more reactive to how people looked at me. Did they look at me as a convict? Did they look at me as a tech CEO? Did they look at me as a reliable PPE source? And and that's kind of how they introduced me. Do they call me Lou or Louie or Lewis? I'm secure. I don't give a shit. Call yeah. me whatever you want. Yeah. It well, doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, so for, for context, we just spent about an hour and a half at lunch. And this podcast, I don't think I've ever been more excited to hear a story. We have to start at at the start. Right. And let's talk about this 12 years ago. Tell us, walk us through how you ended up in prison and give us some background here for, for those of you that don't know the story. So, yeah, I was, uh, you know, in 2000, uh, December 1, 2000, I self-surrendered to federal uh, custody. Um, it was the uh, largest ecstasy case in U.S. history. Still, um, I had thought I was going to get bail that day. I show up, self-surrendered, thinking I'm going to get bail. And uh, they unseal a second indictment for uh, continuing criminal enterprise. Kingpin. Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Where they want to give me life on top of, you know, whatever other conviction I may suffer from the first indictment. Obviously, I didn't get bail. And uh, then I went to a six-week trial. I uh, got sentenced to 30 years. Um, and then uh, I started working on my second case, the CCE case. And by that point, I realized, like, if I want to have any chance of success here, I'm going to have to represent myself. Because 
most of the lawyers are compromised. And when I say most, I mean all. And what does that mean when you say that? You, you know, they say that, hey, I'm going to represent you. You're, you're in real trouble. But because you hired me, and just because you hired me, you're in luck today, right? Because of, it's me. And I'm going to bang it out with this prosecutor. And they don't want nothing to do with me. And I'm a super gangster in court and da da, da and everything, right? And, and it's kind of like a process, right? After, after you give them the money, then the next thing is, oh, well, you know, I got your discovery. And now that we've, I've had the retainer, I've had some time to sit down and actually look at the evidence in your case. There's a couple things there that I didn't know about before. But still, don't worry. Because you hired me, I'm going to go sit down with that prosecutor and, and how, you know, they're going to have their epiphany moment where they realize they're up against me and you're going to be fine. And then each week it like, get, oh, well, there's this, there's that. Oh, it's not as much as I, th oh, they're taking it personal. They're, they really don't like you personally. I couldn't have anticipated that when I asked you for 450 grand retainer and promised you that I was going to be able to handle your case. They're selling you, not, yeah, the, not the jury. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, you know, basically I ended up firing my attorneys and uh, representing myself. And I was able to prove that the government, federal government tampered with a wiretap. I mean, we can go. Sure. Through this for days, like there's, you know, you could make a podcast library out of what happened. But uh, they basically tampered with a wiretap. I caught them. I proved in an evidentiary hearing and uh, beat the life case um, for myself and my co-defendant Tamer Ibrahim. And uh, my appeal attorney Chuck Sevilla out of San Diego, best guy in the world. I wrote him a Thanksgiving letter every year, thanking him for helping me save my life. He's just amazing. Um, he uh, represented me on my appeal for the 30 years and was able to win that, got reduced to 15 and a half um, based on this information. Uh, and then I ended up doing 12 in custody, a year halfway house home confinement. Came home in 2012 to the halfway house, was officially released from custody uh, June 26, 2013. And then I went into, uh, you know, building a couple spec homes and, and then I got into tech and I guess we can... Yeah. pick up from cool. there Actually, i mean I'd, if you guys want to talk no, more I'd, about i'd like to i'd like to talk about more stuff. ecstasy for a yeah. second <laughs> to be honest um i actually i had a question about that so when you were in the game right yeah. it sounds like just from reading what i've read that you had a connection that was uh in europe it was a central european connection you you did your research so would you i want to know about the mindset of okay you you have something you have a commodity that you feel it can make you money right and i feel like did you do do Diligence and 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 um, trying to figure out where the best product was. Were you concerned for safety? Well, actually, Talk actually, what it. happened is I was sending cocaine to London. That's what I was doing first. I was actually I was in London. And I this was is at, a double jeopardy moment, right? Yeah, like you could speak freely at yeah, this point. On I'm, anything, no, I'm right? fine. I'm all yeah, yeah exactly. Like it's all good. It's all public record. Okay, this is great. Um, so uh, I was sending cocaine to London. Um, you know, and how that started is I was at a party in London with some guys who like supposedly were running stuff. Right? They were the big dogs. Mm -hmm. You know running all the security and the restaurants and everything went through them. Trash, I guess their version of the mafia. Um, and uh, I was at a party that they were having, and they had yellow cocaine. And I was like, what, bro? I thought you were running shit. This stuff is junk. What the <laughs> fuck? And they're like, hey, mate, you're taking the fucking piss. You can do fucking better, right? Like, And, and I, I didn't realize, because I wasn't in the drug business. I wasn't raised as a gangster. But, like, when you say shit like that, there's – there's a consequence to what comes out of your mouth in the, on the street or in the drug business, right? And then, of course, I was like, I'm from fucking L.A., bro. I'll fucking get the best shit. I didn't even have a connect at the time. <laughs> you know, but of course, I'm from L.A. I'll get the best shit. Anyway, I come home and, you know, I, it was, it's not hard to get. I knew 
guys who were in. I got a couple kilos and uh, shipped them off, and that's basically how it started. And then I end up, I ended up with a problem. I ended up with a bunch of English pounds that I have to smuggle back into the U.S. So we're talking 1997 now. Now, back in 1997, the Mexicans who had the coke, they weren't taking anything except greenbacks. They don't give a fuck English pound. Uh, Deutschmarks, they only want dollars. What, what is a greenback? A U.S. dollar. Oh, got it. Okay. <laughs> right? Because this is before the euro dollar, right? right? So okay. now they'll take the euro dollar. I love the euro dollar. Right. I'm not in the business anymore, so that doesn't matter. Gotcha. So anyway, how do I, I'm bringing this cash back and then I have to tr trade it in at the old Thomas Cook and all these currency exchange places, right? So I'm getting killed, you know, like, and I'm, I'm taking a risk that I'm not making any profit on because I can lose that money bringing it back, right? So that's never good business. Um, and uh, so the ecstasy was an answer to that problem. Instead of bringing cash back, so I bring an ecstasy huh. back. You sell the ecstasy here. You make more money. You make money on your money, but you also get your money in dollars to buy more coke with. So it's actually the answer to a problem. And uh, then ended up we were you know we were burning it up both ways. And how did I find the ecstasy? Yeah. Um, my research was I went to Amsterdam and I got fucked up for a couple of weeks with a bunch of people and and found the stuff that I felt the best with. The and best shit. You know when you're hanging out with someone do an ecstasy who, and they didn't know that I was looking to buy at that time. These were like Dutch dudes, some gypsy dudes, some, some, um, Albanian dudes, Bulgarian dudes, right? They don't know. You're just hanging out to party with them. Besides sampling their stuff, you're actually getting a pretty good read on them because they're not trying to hide anything from yeah. you because they don't know that you're interested in anything. Right. So I was able to pick and choose a couple great places It ended up being fantastic connections. And, uh, that's true research and development right there. <laughs> <laughs> in the business world. Because truly what you're doing when you're starting to run a drug ring is you're an entrepreneur, right? And yeah. You're starting your own business and you're looking at risk and reward. You're doing your due diligence on how to find a business partner and all these different things as we tie this into. Tell us a little bit. You, you, you were in college. You went to USC. Went to USC, dropped out. I went to, uh, I was a business ethics course, and everybody who knows me knows this story. I watched my business ethics teachers telling me how to ethically do million-dollar business deals. We're not talking about contract law or something here. Ethics. Um, and it's one of the liberal arts core classes that you have to take to get into the business school at USC. So I'm taking that class, and I see this instructor, professor, whatever you want to call him, in the parking lot one day, beat up Honda. <laughs> Fucked up top siders, polyester <laughs> pants. I'm like, this dude's never seen a million dollars in his life. Yeah. Who the fuck is he to tell me anything? Yeah. You know, at that time, I'm selling weed. Everybody's, you know, going to rush week. They want to be, you know, in the house and uh, fraternity and this and that. And during rush week, I'm like selling weed. So I've got, like, I'm sneaking into the Tridelt house at two in the morning from the back window. I'm doing shit that all these. You know, ATO dudes and all these big uh, Greek guys are dream of doing. I got that access, so I got a bunch of bids, but I didn't. I didn't go to any of them. I already had access to all the sororities from selling weed. You know, so I'm making probably three, four grand a week That's then. A true while I have to take this, while I have to take this, uh, you know, business ethics course, it just didn't sit with me. You know, like walk me through. So. There's a lot of people that deal drugs, but how do you scale to become the largest ecstasy dealer in the entire United States? Like, how did you get busted for being the, the largest ecstasy dealer? That, that's interesting, how you scaled from three to $3,000 a week to, and then tell us where you ended before, right before. Yeah, so, you know, that, that was what I was doing in, uh, in college. Then, obviously, then I dropped out of school, too proud to go home. 
So I actually slept in the Beverly Center parking lot for three nights. Wow. And I met a manicurist, a girl who was a manicurist. She actually found me. I'd seen her because she was hot. I was watching her, but <laughs> you're sleeping in the parking lot. You're not exactly walking up to him saying, hi, how are you doing? You got nowhere to Although take. Although you might. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't that guy. I was trying to hide underneath the ramp from the fourth floor parking to the fifth floor parking, right? So anyway, I had this Adidas bag with, like, shit in it, you know, and I'd go bird bath in the in the bathrooms upstairs every day or whatever. And then that bag gets stolen. And on the same day, I'm sitting there, and this, this girl pops her head around, right? And she's like, hi. I'm like, hi. Next thing I know, I'm back driving with her in her little Honda Civic back to Valencia where she lives. And, you know, it was uh, she was great. Um, Kelly, if you're out there, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that was... That was how that kind of chapter of my life ended. And then, you know, I bounced around doing a couple different things. Like, really wasn't, I wasn't raised to be a criminal. I wasn't trying to be a criminal. To me, these opportunities were just money-making opportunities. And then when this came along, um, how I got to where I got was really simple. It's not rocket science. I let people make more money with me than they did with anybody else. I gave people the best product at the best price. So a couple things happened. One, the dudes who were buying 1,000 needed 10,000. Guys who were buying 10,000 needed 100,000. The other thing that happened, which is more subtle, is if you're making more money with me, I'm the guy you're going to protect the most, right? If you get busted on something stupid and you have to rat on somebody, you're going to rat on the guy who you make the least amount of money with, right? You want to protect your best. If you're a gangster, right, and you're making more money with me, you're going to protect me because... I'm the thing that's putting the most money on your table. As long as you protect your connections and don't let them interact with each other, that's to me has always been the best way. And you hear it in business courses all the time. Best product, best price, that's the winner. Right. If you don't have that, now you have to be smart. Right. So I chose not to be smart. Let me just get the best stuff at the best price so I don't have to figure out anything else. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, same thing we do with, with everything we do. I mean, that's really what I look for, whether it's, the PPE stuff we do it's now. business or, principles. Yeah, to me, it just saves you from having to do or know a bunch of other things. If you have the best stuff at the best price, you don't need to be exceptional in any other way. You're exceptional in what the customer's looking for, and you're looking for the customer to give you money. So, okay, so very I'm gonna, simple. I'm gonna, uh, what was the, the, the week before federal indictment, what was your, what was your weekly income? Oh, that, well, for about four months before federal indictment, I wasn't doing anything, but I had, you know, I had $3 million days. Wow. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean now I was in, I was also not running it as a business. I'd be over there, we'd do a few loads and then I'd want to, I was young. Like we were talking about at lunch, I'd come back. Oh, got to go shopping. Got to yeah. go to Vegas. Got to go pick up some strippers. Got to yeah. go this, got to go that, you know, showing off for everybody else. And it's funny. I was never asking myself, what is Lewis like? Everything was pre-programmed about what the world said was cool. Oh, I got to have this Rolex. Actually, when I came home from prison and I have this watch collection, I put it on and I never wore a watch again because why? They're fucking heavy and clunky. They're uncomfortable. You got to worry about them. Like I've never liked watches. I don't, other guys do, but that's just not my thing. So for 50 years, wearing a watch was all based on what somebody else thought was cool. And that opened, you know, like we were talking about earlier, self-awareness and this and that. Like, I had a lot of epiphanies about things like that, right? Like, hey, what makes Lewis happy versus what makes the rest of the world happy? Because the rest of the world, you know, you can chase that forever. 
I can only live my life. So I have to find the things that make me happy. Right. Or or try to find them. You know, I might not know all of them, but try to find them through experiences, relationships, conversations, people, places, yeah. things. Right. And that's what that's what happened. There, um, there's a couple of buckets here that I really want to hit. Yeah, um, go on. And I feel like it's almost three for your for, for your life in a way. But and I want to I want to get to that moment and, and your reflection and epiphanies in, in prison. Um, but prior to that, prior to getting there, I just have one more question that I think was personally uh, for me. You know, I, I've through this pandemic, I've actually lost a, a few friends to uh, to drug use, uh, particularly because of the fentanyl issues. Um, and you talk about, you know, having a, a solid product and, and what I was talking about with Casey, particularly through you know, kind of mourning a, a loss of a serious friend. Um, the issue of legalization and making things safe. Um, do you, just based on your experience, have a reflection as to why, why, for example, the United States hasn't ratified uh, methamphetamine or ratified cocaine in a way that they should to at least make things more safe? What is it in particular? Is there one specific thing that, that makes this issue uh, more complicated than it should be? Well, you got to follow the money, right? So private prison industry, number one. There's no incentivization to have people in for less time. There's no profit in that. There's profit in locking people up, which we're one of the only countries that has that. I mean, imagine that conflict of interest. You make money by locking people up, right? I mean, think about just that. Now, when you have mothers against mandatory minimums, right? Um, how much money do they have to lobby with? A couple million a year? How much does private prison industry have to lobby uh, with? 100 million a year? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, of course, that's the first thing. The second thing is, is the workforce. If you made drugs legal, what is the federal government going to do with all the law enforcement, all the prison officers, all the DEA agents? All These people are all going to be disenfranchised. And, and they're the government's most loyal supporters, be they Republican or Democrat. They're government people all the way. The government is its own entity. They are concerned with maintaining power, be it Republican and, or Democrat, they're flip sides of the same coin. They're not interested. So they've got to take care of their people. They're not going to disenfranchise 80% of government employees. Yeah. Yeah. So you go from indictment, you, you, you're now in prison, no bail, right? What, what's the first day in prison like? And walk us through the first, maybe the first year. Like, where's your head at at this point? Because you said, I'm, I wasn't born a criminal, right? A lot, yeah. of, a lot of people in prison... They're born into this life. They, they know kind of survival. And I'm, I'm assuming, but want to hear, what's the first day? What, what's, what's happening and what does the first year kind of look like as, as you evaluate what your new normal is going to be? Well, first I was in MDCLA, which is it's a federal prison, but it's like the local, like the county jail version. You're not like on a yard. You have all different security levels all together because you're all pretrial, right? So you have you have really bad multiple bank robber murderer you know crossing state line home invaders with dudes who got caught fishing without a license <laughs> i mean really right. no no yeah. no joke wow. right you, you got guys who got caught bringing over two exotic birds from mexico right like with dudes who are like legit yeah. gangster criminals That's so a true melting pot yeah so there's it's a true <laughs> melting pot and the first thing you notice is you know the racial lines of everything in California, it's just what it is. Like, I was in federal, so I got transferred to prisons over state lines, you know, during my time, and it was a little bit different. But first thing you know in L.A., right away it's racial. And for me, being Jewish is, you know, hey, that's 
that's what I am. And, uh, and so other people look at you as white and whites only look at you as white because if somebody other race is beating you up, it looks like a white guy is getting yeah, beat up, it's but you, they don't really want you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's kind of now most people would find that to be a problem. I found that to be an advantage because it allowed me, nobody can swim upstream, but I could swim across stream because the whites didn't want me unless they needed me. And other groups accepted me more because I wasn't this Aryan, you know, white boy, right? Like, so mm. it, it ended up working for me in the end. But it was definitely, you know, definitely uh, not as shocking as, as people would think. I, and I tell people, people ask me this all the time. And I say, you have no idea of what you're capable of doing until you really have to do it, right? right? And you guys have all experienced it, whether it's in sports, whether it's in anything, whether it's you really love this girl and she's out of your league. But if you really go after her, you're going to get her, right. right? Like, if you really commit, like Cortez burned the ships, if you really have to, you can do amazing things, right? And so first you end up in prison, you're going to be able to do better than you think you can because your survival instincts are going to take over. That's just what it is. Um, and you're going to be able to survive in a way that, that you didn't think was possible. Um and, and if not, if you're that, you know, very small fraction of the human population that freezes when confronted with fear, that really freezes and can't. Deer in the headlights. Yeah. If, if you're that, prison's going to be a fucking problem for you. Right. It just is. It, if, if that's what it is, if you can't operate under stress or, or, or in new situations, you're going to be the guy that is the stereotypical prison horse. Well, that's, and that's a really good snapshot in life and kind of based on, you know, why we're doing this podcast is look, there's adversity, you know, you're going to have adversity. How do you, how do you, uh, do you attack it or do you let it attack you? Uh, we, we were just having this conversation at yeah. lunch, right? We're, like we come from this idea of do and learn and pivot fall, but roll over and get the fuck up. And that is, I'm assuming that there's 2000 stories you have about from, you know, pre-prison, during prison, and then after yeah. of doing, rolling, and getting up. Well, yeah, I'll give you an example. In prison, like, look, it's a dangerous place, you know, and after I did my case, fought my case, I did have a certain notoriety because I represented myself. I got sentenced to 30 years. I didn't rat. Um, you know, then I fought a life case that would have given me life on top of the 30 representing myself. Didn't rat. Beat the case. It was the largest XC case in U.S. history. And listen, i got to say this just in case there are kids watching. We're talking now like adults. I talked to a lot of kids. What I did was a mistake. I don't mean to glorify this whatsoever when we're talking about it. And I know we're, like, joking around a bunch of guys on Friday and, like, having some good stories. But I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. What I did was a complete waste of my life. I'm lucky to be here today. And most of you kids out there are involved in gangs. You're never going to be able to get to the top. Because there is, it's a pyramid. There's only so many generals. You're not going to get there. I got there, and I'm telling you, it wasn't worth it. And no matter how much money I made, if you look what I've been able to do since I got home in the tech world, I made nothing compared to what I could have done if I was home in 2007 when the iPhone came out. Biggest mistake of my life. Just want to make sure, and I really, really, really believe that from the bottom of my heart. This isn't lip service, and if any of you ever want to talk to someone and have a straight conversation, I'm always available, and you can reach out to these guys. I love to talk to kids. I love to talk to you and talk with you, not at you, and share my experiences with you, and that's a really, really, really important thing to me. Well, that's a great uh, that's a great segue into the perspective, right? I, I, I loved listening to 
what those 12 years in prison, what that did for you from a perspective standpoint. Like right, yeah. when you first got in, you're not, you're not saying that. No. Right. You're, you're, you're angry, but that anger, right. I think you would mention, yeah. I was angry at the informant for three or four years. Yeah. Right. What let's happened? let yeah. let's yeah. I, w- I love this idea of perspective because even just listening to you at lunch we were joking around about age and you're like yeah i'm i'm 51 and i see it this way now right like yeah. what happened in prison and walk me through how that perspective changed from the beginning till the end yeah so first thing just to finish up on the last yeah. thought right how i how i made my way you know you enter in a dangerous thing and you can either freeze or you can recognize the landscape and i recognize the economics so you know you have um you know, the top gang dudes all have books of stamps or are the currency, right? And they end up with thousands of them, more than they can ever use. They end up just in cracker boxes or Ritz boxes or whatever. And, you know, they use what they need, but they end up with weight. Well, I was able to buy them from them at a deeply discounted rate. And and the advantage to them was is I could get them $2,000 on the street in real money for their girl to pay their rent. So, okay, I'd get $5,000 worth of stamps for 2000 to them it's it's all found and then i was able to hey give my friends here's a list for here's 100 books of stamps here's a list for 300 dollars, and they're happy because to them it's worth 400 so they just got 100 also so on one level i was basically untouchable because i was doing for the biggest dudes in the prison right I was also doing for myself, making a profit where I didn't have to stand at commissary line. And I was doing for my own crew because they go stand in line and and they're happy because they're making money. Did you just go up to the bosses and go, hey, I, I, have, a, I have a deal for you? I mean, how did you approach that? Oh, so, so I followed the advice that um, I give to everybody. And when people ask me, oh, tons of people ask me, they're like, hey, my kid's going to prison. I'm going to prison. What should I do? How do I this? How do I that? Right? I go, I'm going to tell you what you should do, but you're not going to be able to do it. They're like, what is it? I'm like, don't say a fucking word. If you're not talking, you're watching and listening. If you are talking, you're identifying yourself as someone who's never been there before. Uh-huh. Why do you need to know what time lunch is? Why? Are, are you going to be able to go sooner if you know? <laughs> when it's lunchtime, <laughs> the door will open and you will go. Why do you need to know what time laundry is? Why? When it's laundry time, they bring the laundry carts to the unit, and you'll see everybody else throwing their laundry right. bags in. Why do you need to know the answer to any of those questions? You don't because the knowledge will not help you in any way. Everything that's going to happen is going to happen. <laughs> don't be in the front. Don't be in the back. Be in the middle of the group. That's it. Right. You know what happens? Everybody else thinks that you're a seasoned veterano because you're not asking. When you're asking all these questions, you're identifying, hey, it's me. I've never been here before. Fuck me over, please. (laughs) Well, it's like in a negotiation, right? He who speaks first loses you. Yeah. And so that's basically what you're saying because only a nervous person asks, what good does that information do you? Right. Right now, hey, if somebody says whatever, don't you don't be rude. Say please, excuse me, whatever. Because all guys who've been in a long time, they say excuse me. It's one of the things that makes me crazy about being out in public. Tough guys, guys who are try to act tough in public, they bump into you at a bar or nightclub or whatever, and they don't say excuse me, and they think that makes them tough. Yeah. Tough, fucking straight serial killer, real murderers bump into you in prison, and they say excuse me. To me, that's a tough guy. That's a tough guy, though. He's yeah. not insecure. Right. Yeah. He doesn't need to act like 
any way. And that's one of the biggest problems inmates have when they come home is you're around some real legit dudes. And then you come home to all these fake dudes, like trying to act tough at a nightclub where there's security and, and all this stuff. Right. <laughs> or they have security with them and they're talking to them. in prison. There's no tap out, dude. You get in a fight. <laughs> it, it's going to end how it ends. There, nobody's coming to save you. Right. There is no, Oh, I tapped bro. Let there's none of that. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> right? it's a, that's a real it's fight. A it's a different it's a street fight. It's, it's a just got real. Thing. It's a street fight right yeah. there. So anyway, I, I, I went through, I got through, you know, all that stuff. And then um, the next thing that happened to me, like to answer the, the last question you asked was, um, you know, my epiphany moments. Um, and it happened about three years in, I was in the shoe under investigation for undermining the orderly running of the institution, which was basically their way of saying they didn't like me. You got to understand the mentality of a prison officer. Now, this is my opinion. I don't believe that anybody grows up and says, I want to be a prison guard, right? People grow up and say, I want to be a cop. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a fighter pilot. I want to be a football player. I want to be a basketball player. I've never met or heard of anyone at eight years old that says, I want to be a fucking prison guard. So the minute you take that job as a prison guard, you're admitting that all your hopes and dreams for your life and all your parents' hopes and dreams for your life are dead. It's you're, over. You're, I'm there because I have to be. You're coming there to get a paycheck? Yeah. Like, so the you couldn't find anything else? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the mentality of prison guards. Now, the dudes who work the pen and the maximum security – Different story. They're very respectful. But I'm talking about medium security, lower security, federal correctional institutions. Um, how they make themselves feel better is they look at other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as him. Ah. So when it came to me, they couldn't really do that because, you know, I had girl girlfriends of mine visiting that were hotter than the hottest girl they ever jacked off to, let alone actually <laughs> slept with, right? Like, <laughs> um, um, you know, they look at my case, they see all the stuff that's, that's around, like they couldn't, it was very difficult for the police officers to, or, or the, not police officers, for prison guards to look at me and say, oh, I'm doing better than him. You know, and I was very much like I was kind of an asshole about it, too. I didn't walk around with my head down. You know, they, they said many times I didn't show what they considered to be the proper amount of remorse. Sure. Right. And uh, so anyway, I'm in the shoe under a bullshit investigation, uh, which they never found me. They never were able to take any good time from me the whole time I was in. They put me in the shoe a lot, but they couldn't ever actually convict me for anything to take away any good time. Um, anyway, I was in there about three years and. I was very angry at my informants, like very, very, very angry. Uh, it, like it burned inside me that like, you know, you know, when you get punched in the nose and you get that, your blood boils, and right? Like I was just walking around without getting punched in the nose feeling like that. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good feeling. <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and then it hit me like out of the blue, just, hey, you fucking idiot. If you're half as smart as you think you are, then every time you blame them, you're making yourself stupid. Because if you're half as smart as you think you are, you should have seen it coming. It was at that moment that my life went from blaming and justification to responsibility. That opened the door to a bunch of other epiphanies about which led me to self-awareness. Once you really examine yourself through and, and really take a close look at yourself and, and your own you know, problems and recognize them, and recognize where you've been deficient or you've been, you know, just not a good person. Um, that and and accept that. That 
helps you really see those things in other people that you've interacted with. So I basically took my life apart from every interaction and that really opened up my world. I really believe that that was when my experience caught up to my education and I believe when those things happen is when you start to have wisdom. You know, because we can learn things like we talked about lunch, right? You learn for 20 years you're in school. Okay, great. I read all these books. I memorized all this stuff and the three million years of instinct that's been passed on to me by all my ancestors, I'm just going to fucking ignore that because I've got 20 years of reading books. Right. Right. Well, it doesn't work like that. Right. Life experience also plays a part. Now, there's knowledge in those books. Right. Um, and there's knowledge and experience. And when your experience reaches your education, now you have wisdom and you can behave in a way that's more advantageous to you, but also when you're talking to other people, you're able to advise them in, in a productive manner rather than just, you know, an adversarial fuck you, you don't know what you're doing manner because you recognize that you used to be the guy who didn't know what he was doing either, I, right? I, I think that's critical in education. That's the only reason, for example, that, that I accepted an offer from the Santa Clara University School of Law to teach a little sports law. It wasn't because I felt like I had read so much. It's because... I go to class and want to educate the students about how it really is. You can talk about a contract all day, right? But you can't, how do you get to that? And what yeah. really happens? Total total distinction between reality. Um, and I think that needs to be fixed in education, but who knows? If well, it's, it's the I, the concept of paralysis by analysis, right? Like yeah. you just you pause so many different times thinking and reading and not doing, right? We, we, we talked about that for, for yeah. in a lot of different scenarios and, yeah. and just a, you, you've you've got to do. I I hear I see this all the time of just people t talking about a lot of stuff, right? And they, they tell stories about what they're going to do, and it drives me fucking nuts, yeah. right? Like just do it. Yeah, I'm gonna, a lot of talkers. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah. 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 A lot of talkers, like professional talkers, like professional bullshitters. Well, they get paid for it, right? Yeah. Well, lawyer gets paid to advise you to litigate. Because he's going to get another lawyer paid on the other side. Yeah. Now, once two lawyers both have billing open, how fast cahoots. your shit's going to get handled? Well, he's not incentivized to, to win or lose. He's incentivized he's by to time. drag it on. Yeah. yeah. So, like, yeah. Where, where's the motive here? Yeah. Right? Like, that incentive is really, I think, uh, a component of it. No, it really is. Um, going back to, so, so epiphanies, right? We talk about epiphany. Was there a point at which in, in prison you decided to, I mean, the, where does the entrepreneur come out in prison? Did you start, like, because of your epiphany, start reflecting on your life and therefore thinking about ways to do business above ground? I mean, how, what happened? I mean, well, I, I don't know. For, for me, I don't think that part changed. I was always, is, is there a money opportunity? Is there a revenue opportunity? Now, when I was younger, I didn't draw the distinction between legal or illegal. It, it, it was irrelevant to me, mm -hmm. right? Now, one thing that did happen to prison is it fucking worked. I don't want to go back, so I'm not doing dirt anymore. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. that, and that's what happens. So, And it's kind of like what I tell kids. I go, when I talk to kids, I tell them, hey, you guys can do everything that I do. And they go, no, we can't. Da, 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 da. And I go, wait, wait. Yeah, you can't. They're like, no, no, you this, that. I was like, wait, isn't there a kid out there on the yard that none of you guys like? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, don't you know how to get what you want from them when you need something from them? Whether it's violence, physical, whether it's being nice to them, whether it's offering that to invite them to a party, whether it's getting somebody else who likes them to go ask them. They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, that's called manipulation. They're like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, well, that word has a negative connotation, but do you think it's different when I offer someone $3,000 a month in exchange for QAing my software? That's manipulation too. It's just there's no loser. 
So you guys have all the brain. You just keep spinning the wheel until you find the solution where there's no loser. Right now, you're not filtering out the loser. You're fine with there being a loser. You want to succeed in life on the right side of the law. That's all you have to do. Just keep spinning the wheels until there's no loser. Now, there's one other trick that's associated with that. You have to make sure that you're not the loser also. And in order to do that, you have to be able to be honest with yourself. Mm. Right? And But you guys have all that. You have all that. You know how to navigate your way around people you like, don't like. You know how when there's a party, there's some people that like each other, don't like each other. That's HR. You guys are better than, than that. You just don't know how to use the vocabulary to make people feel comfortable. But your diplomacy is way better than any HR officer I've ever seen. You guys have that instinctually. It's a $300,000 a year job in some companies. Don't tell my HR director that. <laughs> but... You know, I mean, and so that, that's that's exactly what I tell them. I go, they have, it, it's all, it's just, it, you just have to repackage it, right? You just have to, all that fuck you gangster shit, right? Mm -hmm. There's a value in that, but repackage it into, you know, instead of fuck you, listen, I'm assertive, I want to move forward with this, this is the plan to this and that and the other thing. And you're saying fuck you without saying it because you're the guy who has the plan. You take responsibility or the woman that has the plan. I've got responsibility. I've got the plan. That's saying fuck you to all the people who don't have it without saying fuck you. That's how the public, you have to act within the public in non in a non-criminal. It's interesting that you, you use, uh, capturing what you said, uh, you're saying that prison worked in a way. Yeah. Um, but when, when you reflect on all the political dynamics of, of prisoners and, 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 and the question I have is, what exactly did you feel prison healed you in a way? Did you feel it was what do you use the term? Would you use the let's get more specific? Would you use the term rehabilitative? What, what yeah, would you it, use? It, listen, uh, um, I think that we're the United States of America and we can definitely improve the criminal justice system. We can definitely improve the prison system. But I do have to say that most guys who get to the level of the drug business that I was at end up dead or in prison forever. And I'm sitting here with you guys. It's fuck me Friday on fuck you Friday, <laughs> right? Like, so I mean, that's gonna be a new tagline. Yeah, by the way, that's a good quote. <laughs> um, so you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't see, if I'm being honest, I don't see another end game there. If I hadn't have been busted, I end up dead. Wow. Yeah, that's because my ego yeah. was out of control. I was out of control. Like everything we were doing, as much as I thought I had you know, a handle on things. I didn't, like I said, I wasn't built for that. Like I, I'm not a killer. I wasn't prepared to do the things that most people who get to that level are prepared to do. Mm -hmm. I'd found a sweet spot because people made more money with me than anybody else. But how long is it before somebody else just wants my whole slice of the pie? Yeah. 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 Right. And, and I just, I, you know, I used to go out to dinner with my fiance alone. I didn't have an entourage or a bunch of gangsters around me or this or that, you know, and, and, and it worked, and there was a sweet spot, and it, you know, went from, you know, nothing to the DEA said, you know, 95% of the ecstasy in the United States between 97 and 2000 was a direct result of me and my partner, Tamer. And, wow. uh, you know, I mean. Unbelievable. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. And, and just, you know, but to think that that could continue, especially with what I know now, what I didn't know then. Mm -hmm. If you're asking me now, yeah, I would have to say that, getting arrested was probably the best day of my life because it made sure that I was going to have a life. Right. 
And I had to fight for it. They wanted to lock me up forever. Yeah. They wanted to never let me come home, and I had to fight for it. And through that fight, just like you know, you guys in sports, you find out who you really are in those moments. Yeah. And there is a part of me that is very happy that I was the man that I hoped I would be in that situation. I love the we 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 told you told this story about how you ended up getting rid of your previous highly paid attorney, yep. right? Uh, and then moving into representing yourself. You got a lot of time on your hands in prison. Yeah. So walk us through the reading and the learning and how yeah. that all came about. Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, I got sentenced to 30 years. First indictment. Second indictment was for CC, continuing criminal enterprise. They call it the kingpin count. And uh, I, I started to sense, like, you know, that path I told you about in the beginning. Hey, because you hired me and just because you hired me, you're safe. Oh, I, there's some of your discovery now that I've looked at. I didn't realize. That, oh, well. But you're still safe because you hire. Oh, but you know the prosecutor's taking it personal now. They edge their way out of it, right? And and I'm not stupid. I'm like, okay, you're a lawyer. The judge is a lawyer. Prosecutor's a lawyer. You all make money off each other working. How can you really be adversarial, right? And then I realized, like, hey, these guys who are, they represent me. They get 450 grand in a six week trial, and nobody wants to know who my attorney is because I got 30 years. They represent the informant. Sure, they only get 30 grand, but it's two debriefings and a sentencing, and everybody wants to know who their lawyer is. Now, in order to get that informant a good deal, right, they have to be on good terms with the United States Attorney's Office. Yeah. I mean, so how far are they really willing to go for me? So I wanted to see, like, what was their pay, you know, like, do they have a magazine? Do they have a newspaper? Where can I find out about them socially? I wanted to see, because you're locked up, you know, I'm locked up on the, on the floor with, hundred other guys, right? They all have attorneys too. Most of them are public defenders, but there's probably 20 or 30 private lawyers. Like, hey, your lawyer's at the same Christmas party with the prosecutors. Like, I was looking for something like that, right? Just to see, to prove my curiosity. And part of the, what come is the Daily Journal is, uh, the LA Journal is the paper in LA for all lawyers. And what comes with it, which I didn't know when I ordered it was the DAR's, Daily Appellate Review. So I start reading appeal cases all the federal and california state cases and uh i didn't go to law school but i know what fucking wins on appeal <laughs> and and what they my lawyers were talking about wasn't gonna win anything right like, <laughs> and that was just through reading and observing yeah. paying attention right yeah you had the time so you're studying yeah i'm studying and then i had you know i had cases and stacks and stacks of uh of legal docs in my cell right so Everybody else got a computer, but I had literally, they had these boxes that were like 18 inches high that were like this, right? And you were yeah. supposed to have one. I had four rows of them stacked to the ceiling because I represented myself, so the rules changed a little bit. This is a funny story. Um, but I knew where everything was. Like, Tamer, when he, he was just, he used to always be amazed because we'd be reading the transcript from the first trial, looking at evidence in the second trial, evidence from the first trial, and you'd have to be able to put it all together, right? Like, so how do you remember where, but I remembered where everything was. You got, Tamer is your business partner who ratted on you. No, he didn't rat. Tamer's, he didn't rat. Tamer's my partner. He didn't rat. He did, he did 10 years. Oh, so you guys were in together and he we was your business together. partner. Yeah, got he's it. still my business partner. He's got my it. best friend. Okay. Love him to death. Got it. Okay. Everybody should have a friend like that. We beat the, we beat the prisoner's dilemma together. I mean, it's, it's, he's a very, very, very special dude. Man. That's awesome. He could have gone home to rat on me. I could have gone home to rat on him. And 
you know, that's the prisoner's dilemma, right? And it wasn't like we were both going to get out. We knew in order to save the remainder of each other's life, we were going to have to give up a chunk of our life in. Because wow. we also knew they weren't going to let us walk no matter what, you know. Even that we had them on some, on some stuff, they just weren't going to let us walk. They didn't. Big drug cases make bad law. Every lawyer will tell you that. That's the same thing they all say. Um, so anyway, then, uh, you know, representing myself. and uh, uh, oh, So I'm reading the Daily Appellate Reports. I'm learning. And I tell my attorneys, I was like, look, I, wanna, um, I want the government disqualified. I want to call them as a witness to testify about when they decided to tamper with a wiretap in order to secure the first conviction. And, of course, they don't want anything to do with that. Right. Um, I was like, well, they're the under the best evidence rule. The prosecutor should be the one to testify when they decide to tamper with the evidence so that they could let their rats lie in the first trial. And uh, anyway, that's what ended up, you know, the big thing. And uh, so I go to I go to court one day. I fired this guy, Louis Palazzo, who still takes credit. You fucking cocksucker for, <laughs> for winning my case, right? State that for the record. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he still takes credit for winning my case. Him and this other fucking cocksucker, Ron Richards, another fucking piece of Tell us of how trash. you really feel. No, <laughs> listen, cocksucker. <laughs> and I don't mean that derogatorily to gays, like, yeah. at all. Yeah. I just mean cocksucker. Yeah, fuck in, off. We're in the old that, school we're version. That is yeah. the tease. Yeah. For this, for this I mean that in the old school cocksucker can we, can version. Can we sell that to Pornhub? Maybe get an endorsement over okay, there? Okay, now you're oh, going okay, down sorry. a different okay, path. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, they still take credit for like me, uh, you know, winning my case. Like, that's what they tell people. Um, anyway, so uh, get rid of them and represented myself and we had a, we had a really good run with that. Um, again, we could do another podcast about just yeah. the hearings, it, right? It's interesting, like, though, because... This could go on and I, on. Do, do you, do you, would you assume that, that prosecution would, would celebrate when they first heard that you would represent yourself? Well, that's, traditionally, right? Traditionally, yeah. you go, oh, yes, we got a winner. That's, that's funny, because when I went, to that, I went to court that day after I fired him, I'm like, what am I doing in court? You never want to go to court, because they take you down there at 4 in the morning. You're sitting in a fucking hard bench all day. If you're lucky, you get the roll of toilet paper to put behind your head. So you can lay down, right? Like, it is just a cold, miserable day. And they do that on purpose. They want to discourage you from using your rights to go to court. They want everybody to plead out. So they make going to court a fucking nightmare. It doesn't need to be the nightmare that it is. Um, and anybody that audited that, that would definitely know this is by design, um, at least in L.A. at the federal court. Um, they, that's that's how they do it. Um, so anyway, I get to court, and I'm I'm like, the judge is like, well, um, you know, you want to dismiss your attorney. I'm like, Your Honor, I don't know, what did I miss here? I hired the guy, I'm firing the guy. Well, you know, Mr. Ziskin, we have to, uh, you know, I have to make that determination. You're not allowed to just do that. And I'm like, really? I think according to Feretta versus United States, as long as I understand the charges against me, as long as I understand the consequences of a guilty verdict, and as long as I'm doing this of my own free will, this motherfucker's gone. <laughs> I get to represent myself. Wow. I wow. mean, <laughs> case law. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's a Supreme Court. Anyway, yeah. she's like, no, I have to make a finding about the relationship and da da da. You know, and, and Judge Snyder was great. I mean, she was great. Um, anyway, so. The prosecutor, she asked the prosecutor, oh, Gene Moorbacher, um, do you have any problem with that? 
uh, do you have it? And she's like smiling, you know, no objection. No, no objection. Like she, yeah. she thought it was going to be a walk in the park, but I'll do respect to her and uh, Tom Schlesinger, my other prosecutor. They were both very graceful. And, and Gene Morbacher actually told another attorney that the only good attorney on the case <laughs> was <you>. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, they're doing their job too. I mean, I don't, I don't take it personal. You know, back then, I, I took everything personal. Like, you know, we were talking about the about the other stuff. Until you have self awareness and know who you are, it's very difficult to know who other people are. It changes your life. Yeah, it really does. And you know, when I was younger, it was just I was, you know, pissing vinegar. And and but even even a few years in, I, I was already very much of the opinion that like, hey, they were doing their job. Um, even that they cheated a little bit, that's what gave me the out. Um, I didn't take it personal, you know, and I, I wish them the best. So, oh, I mean, I haven't spoken to them or run into them or anything, but, uh, you know, I got no no animosity whatsoever. They're, they're doing their job. They right. think they're what they're – and this is another truth that people who are in don't really say much. But if we're keeping it real, I have to say from my own experience in 10 different federal prisons of all different security levels – 95% of the people in there should be the world's a better place because they're there. Yeah. Right now, tell me another fucking government system that works 95% of the time. No. There isn't. You know, I mean, so when people talk about, hey, we're the U.S., should we try to be better? Should we try to protect those 5% that shouldn't be there? Should we always try to achieve perfection? Absolutely. But to say that it's broken... Nobody's being honest with you that's been in there is going to say it's fucking broken. <laughs> Should it be better? Is there a racial problem? Absolutely. Is there is there a racial discrepancy in how much time um, other races get versus whites? Hundred fucking percent. Wow. Do we need to fix that immediately? Absolutely. But we're not talking about they're innocent either. Let's make that yeah. distinction. Yeah. We're talking about these are guilty people, right? And how much time they get is something that we can look at. But as far as who gets locked up, 90 listen. 95% of the time, you're they're right. Can you tell the 5% in there? Um yes. Okay. And and the reason why is you're around people every day, right? Now they might behave some way in front of the cop, they might behave some way when they're in court. But once you're in prison and not all that's over and nobody's looking, you see who people really are. Hmm. There's, you know, listen, if we don't like each other, I can leave here right now and we don't ever have to run into each other again for the rest of our lives. In prison, that's just not the case. There is no, you're going to, everything's going to, every social issue is going to come to a head and you're going to see people for who they really are, right? And, and this doesn't mean that these are, Oh, everybody who's nice is innocent. No, because some some nice people are like, hey, I did it. You know, I'm talking, but through that kind of knowledge of watching people on a daily basis, you get to learn the same way if you're sitting playing poker. Are they lying or telling the truth? And when you're sitting there and they're telling you, man, this is really what happened to me, da, 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 or you're looking at their paperwork and you can see, like, oh, this motherfucker got fucked. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, you know, no, but yeah. it is really rare. It is really rare. I mean, 5% might be too much. Wow. But I don't mean to say that they give out the right amount of time. That that needs to be adjusted, right? Mm -hmm. I don't mean to say that there isn't racial discrepancy in sentencing. There absolutely fucking is. You know, me and my wife actually just 
had this had this issue, right? We were talking about the Capitol. She was like really mad because on social media they're saying, "Oh, if this was black people, they would have been yeah. killing them." And I believe they would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking real. Yeah, and she's she's like, no, that's not. I was like, babe, no. you've only been here a couple of years. You don't fucking know. I'm telling you, if it was blacks up there taking over the yeah. or Mexicans or Cubans they, or Dominicans been, uh, running through the Capitol doing shoot that, first, ask they would have. They'd still yeah. be sweeping up bodies. Yeah, yeah. it's. It, I mean, and that's just real, yeah. you know. And but I also think I, I, this kind of goes off the subject a little bit. But I, right. I think you know. From what I've seen in my life and, and all the different places I've been, um, racism is a symptom of something. It's a symptom of tribalism, which benefited humanity and allowed us to survive when we weren't the dominant animal in the field, right? And now we no longer need it, right? And we can evolve past it. But the need, the need to sign, assign final blame is the biggest roadblock. Because if you think about it, all of us, anybody who's alive today has been a slave at some point, either a serf, slave, whatever. They're, one of our ancestors has been in slavery. Um, if also, the flip side of that, every one of us that's alive today, one of our ancestors has lived at somebody else's expense, survived when someone else didn't at their expense. Maybe there wasn't enough food, maybe they killed them, whatever. If you look all throughout the trail of humanity, right? Like, um, it, it's just like that. Now, what we need to recognize is first, and, and the entrenched powers that be, be they on either side, don't want to admit this. If racism is just a symptom and the core cancer is tribalism that we need to address, they're not interested in that because they can't pass the hat anymore if it gets cured, right? They want to, like pharmaceutical it's, it's companies, economics they want to keep giving you a treatment, right? And that treatment is not doing us. Let's make a law against this. Let's make a law against that. Let's make a law against. That's not fixing the problem. The problem is, look, okay, we tribalism served humanity for three hundred thousand years. It's no longer needed and is a detriment now. Let's all recognize that, accept and that, forward. and own that, yeah. and move forward. You know, and part of that is is like, hey, yeah, like what I said. If it was black people up there, they would have been fucking killing them. Yeah. They still would have been sweeping up the bodies or any any race that wasn't white. That's fucking 100% true. I'm 51 years old. I love America. It's my favorite country in the world. I'm a super patriot. I think, you know, when you talk about these issues, you can't even talk about them in more than 50% of other countries. In more than 50% of other countries, uh, uh, fucking your own kid is, is not illegal. In more than 50% of other countries, beating a woman is not illegal. In 50% of other countries, there's still slavery. This country's on the cutting edge of fixing all those things. And the fact that we have this tension and this static is, is based on the fact when you shoot a spaceship off into space, there's a tremendous amount of heat and friction on the nose of that spaceship or on the, on the heat shield when it's landing. So that's what we're experiencing. But I'm super proud to be part of the country, a member of the country where that can happen because this is not the most racist country in the world. Go to China. Yeah, no. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's not even close. So while we do have problems, we also do have an advantage that we can talk about it and and move forward. The problem is most of the people that are talking don't talk straight. They're talking to raise money. They're talking for yeah, an agenda. They're talking for that. votes. They're talking from you know. They're letting their personal feeling outweigh the the large data set. Right. Like 
and you know this happened to my dad so i'm always going to feel this or way. their pocketbook right you yeah. can always go back to the money yeah right? people are politicizing it or they're they're trying to gain eyeballs or you know be the hot take yeah uh, that, there's too much of that going on we talked about it a little bit too it's that we've gotten away from having conversations we've gotten away from yeah. like can we listen to someone who doesn't agree with you and have a conversation about it we've it's gotten so far away from that it's frustrating right the the reality is probably somewhere right in between is where reality is and yeah. we've just we're only listening to someone way over here way over here because it's way more interesting but if we could just come together and have a couple of dialogue about the things i mean we're yeah. gonna be a lot better off and hopefully we can get back to that exactly it's just like we were talking about coronavirus not none of america got the truth the truth is it's not the end of the world and it's not nothing it's right in the middle, but there's no votes for saying middle doesn't it's in win. The middle. Right. middle doesn't win. <laughs> middle doesn't win. The truth is always, you know, I, I, I told you guys earlier, when I hear a politician say something, I don't care, Democrat or Republican, to me, I just cross that off the list as possibility of truth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever's left that didn't come out of their yeah. mouth could possibly yeah. be true. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> and, and that's 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 partly our fault. We're we're allowing ourselves to be motivated because they've tapped into that tribalist nature that's ingrained in us. Oh, Republican or Democrat. It's like, you guys are sports. What is fucking sports dudes going in shirts with face paint yeah, and everything? Yeah. If that's not tribalism and getting behind your team, yeah, I don't know yeah. what is, yeah. right? Like, yeah. we're programmed for that. We're susceptible to that. And politicians have recognized that and are looking to exploit they, they capture that. Capture that, yeah. You know, and, and group leaders and, and supposed, like, civic-minded people and this and that. They're using that to fucking pass the pat. They're not using that to fix anything. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some solutions, though. And this kind of goes into delving into the third bucket as I categorize you. Um, let, let's talk about after after prison. Let, let's talk about some of the things that you've done, um, some of the uh, business opportunities you've created for yourself. Um, talk me a little bit about, for example, the app, uh, the, not app, well, software-based uh, drop-in. Um, what happened? Did it succeed? How's it going? What's, what is it? So, um I was building spec homes for my brother. Me and Tamer were building spec homes in the valley. And um, I went to a dentist office one day out in Encino. And on the table, there was this, like, thick reading material. It was FAA proposed regulations for commercial drone pilots. Now, it's something that nobody would ever pick up unless you've been in prison and look for dense reading material <laughs> that looks boring to everybody else because you got tons yeah. of time, to a lot of time. <laughs> right? So I picked this up and I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, all right. You got to have, you can't fly the drone over 400 feet and you, and you, uh, and it has to be line of sight and you're going to have to get a license. So I realized right away, cause my brain still works in some ways, like, you know, a criminal circumventing, how do I get around that? Oh, you don't need to control the drone. You just need to control the guy who's controlling the drone. Okay. So I called a friend of mine who was an engineer at Samsung. He's now a senior engineer over there, Noor. And I said, hey, can you live stream from a drone? And he said, yeah, YouTube Live's doing it with DJI drones right now. So I go Amazon, you know, and this was back in the day where you could pay. You didn't get the free Prime two-day. Like, right. you well, get free. you pay extra for next-day delivery. delivery, right? <laughs> yeah. You pay extra for next-day delivery. I order, uh, I think I spent half as much on the delivery as I did on the drone. <laughs> get it? This Phantom 3 comes, or Phantom 2, I don't even remember, comes the next day. And uh, I put it up in the air. I do all the things, and I learn my first tech term, latency. Because what I'm seeing on the live stream is what happened a minute ago, Right. I'm like, well, you can't tell a pilot to fly right or left if you're seeing what he saw a minute ago. So I call Noor back. 
he gives me this whole list of stuff. He says, yeah, yeah, that's latency. I'm like, what's latency? He's like, what you just described to me. That's called latency. That's and I was like, really? He's like, yeah, you, people don't notice it, but Facebook Live has a ton of latency. Twitter's Periscope has a ton of latency because there's no need for the, you know, you have a chat going back and forth, but you don't need to talk to the person in real time based on what they're doing. So anytime you have, and so I learned, like, the more people watching the stream, the more bandwidth is used, the more latency there is, right? So those are broadcast applications. They're not really communication applications, right? So learn all that, and he's like, yeah, you need to get a... Uh, you need in-app live streaming from a drone, low latency, this whole list. So a uh, cousin of mine hooked me up with this, uh, you know, booking company, Project 10X Management. And they got me a great guy, Ahmad Alakush. Uh, he was in New York, had a great experience. He's like, look, I can get you a demo of this, 30 grand, three months. Great, sign, da, 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 do it. Now I, uh, but I also know self-awareness again, right? I don't know shit about code. If this motherfucker wants to take me for a ride, there's nothing that's going to stop him. So I get a, I get a, from my friend Ronan, he introduced me to Ian Broyles, great guy too. He worked on Foursquare, you know, great, great iOS coder. And uh, I tell him the same thing. I need in-app live streaming from drone, low latency, VOIP, the whole thing, right? Give him the whole list. He's like, yeah, uh, 30 grand, about three months. I was like, okay. Yeah. Hired him. Hired them both. Didn't tell them about each other. When one had a problem, I'd tell the other. When the other had a problem, I'd tell the other. I got the demo done in half the time for twice the price. So depending yeah. what side of the table you're yeah. sitting on, I'm either a genius or a jackass. Yeah. But <laughs> Probably uh, both. Yeah, was, Probably both. Yeah. I was about to say, I'll let you know in about 20 minutes, but I'm scared of you. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it was great, you know, but but this uh, downside protection, right? You know, I mean, and uh, and that's how that kind of took off. But you know what, what, you know, and we went from there, we added the camera phone, we, you know, we used the drones for rooftop inspections for insurance companies, you don't have to climb on a ladder. And then but we realized that the bulk of the application would be to be able to see anything anywhere live. At any time. Yeah, yeah at any time. And, uh, you know, the first iteration of it was just the public. Hey, you want a drone flight? It wasn't for insurance at all. You want a drone flight? You want to see if your girlfriend's car's parked at home at 11 o'clock at night, whatever it is. You pay a few bucks. Somebody right next to there will go there and live stream for you. You tell them, move to the right, move to the left. You get a copy of the video afterward. You take some pictures. It's like the Uber drone. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That was my idea. And, uh, and, and we did it with camera phones, too. So anything, you're a lawyer, you need to see a property. Anybody needs to see anything live where Google Street View doesn't do it for you. need live right now what's happening there right now. Great. Well, the mar this is what I, where I learned. The market reality of having enough saturation of that for it to actually work, right, is either a super slow organic growth model, which I'm not, that's not me. That doesn't speak my language at all. I'm not talking shit about it. I'm sure it works for other people, but... I don't, I'm just not good at that. Um, or $20 million marketing, which I didn't have. And even if I did, I wasn't going to spend. Um, but I didn't have it, so I didn't have to make the decision. But I wouldn't have spent $20 million marketing <laughs> if that's all I had. <laughs> um, so uh, I pivoted. And who would use this hundreds of times a day? Insurance companies. So we pivoted to insurance. And, uh, you know, now we're doing a couple pilots with states for uh, um, child protective services parole inspection, so it's less invasive. They can be on more sites. You know, you don't interrupt the parolee when he's at work or his job. He doesn't lose his job because all these yeah, It was interesting, visits. too, because you said that that sometimes excludes people from opportunity of employment, right? Yeah, so when I was at the halfway house, there was three guys who actually got a job at Costco. Now, listen, I'm not an idiot. 
95% of the people at the halfway house didn't want a job. But these three guys got one, right? They were really trying to do something with their life. And they were they had that back thing and the shoulder thing. Yeah. These motherfuckers were working. This wasn't no, like, oh, I'm going to drink coffee for eight hours, right? And they'd come home in the khakis and their You could tell they were just dog tired. And they lost their job. And the reason why they lost their job is the halfway house is calling their manager five times a day. Hey, is he there? No. Do you see him right now? Do you see him? Do you put eyes on him? And uh, I've had a girlfriend like that. Actually, I felt like I was in a halfway house. <laughs> oh, tell her, give her my number so I can give her a drop. Oh, yeah. Oh, she yeah. Got, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll give you yeah. the whole profile. Yeah. You can have it. <laughs> um, I don't want the whole profile. I just want a customer. Have I have a wife. I have a wife. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I love my wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I love you, Gigi. Um, Good so, plug right there. Nice <laughs> job. Nice job. Yeah. No, she's my gangster. That's she's, awesome. She. I got to tell you, there's something true to the cliche when you have a good woman. I want. I want you, to just talk about that. Uh, yeah, you, you, can, you have. A, uh, you must have a 51 years of good love stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is this is my best one, and she's. Uh, you know, she's my gangster. How long she's, have you guys been married? We've been married for about a year and a half, but we've been together four and a half years. Okay. And I think it happened for both of us at the right time. I was old enough to where. You know, the things that mattered when I was 30 right. don't matter anymore, yeah, right. right? And yeah. so I've slowed down a little bit. And, and you know, she's – the thing that I – I met her when she was 27. And the thing that hit me about her is um, when we met, she's like, yeah, I'm a model, but that's going to end soon. So I'm doing real estate and I'm finishing my psychology degree. Now, you guys know, what fucking models ever said that? <laughs> and, I mean, this is a real model who actually sells her pictures, yeah. not the model who a photographer invited him over to take pictures to try and fuck him. Yeah. I mean, someone who actually yeah. sells the, their the pictures. LA big models. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, big difference. <laughs> no, there's a big difference. Yeah, okay, so a photographer yeah. invited you over yeah, to take no, some yeah. pictures. I've been right? to L.A. Yeah. Yeah. He's actually uh, been a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> 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 So was I. So was I. <laughs> Have you actually sold your pictures for money? Right, right? now right. you're a model. Right now right. you're right. licensing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, now you're a model. And then the answer that I normally get is, um, does OnlyFans count? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess so. OnlyFans counts. Yeah, yeah. Has to. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're modeling. Yeah, you you're modeling. Judging over here. Listen, fuck you, Friday. That's how a lot yeah, of model service girls pivoted what? during yeah. COVID. That's true. Yeah. yeah, they pivoted. That's an entrepreneurial spirit right there. No, this why is not? Like gold right here. <laughs> I have to edit this one out. <laughs> well, but why not? Why not? Yeah, right? Yeah, if you yeah, think yeah. about it, why not? I, I I got into. I don't want to name the actress, but she was naked in a in a movie, and we were out at my friend's restaurant, Koi, one night, right? And uh, and she was talking shit about strippers. I was like, all right, wait a second. You got X millions of dollars for that movie where everybody saw you naked. How many people watch that movie? Oh, so you got like less than a dollar from each person who <laughs> saw you naked. A stripper's getting 20, 50, 100 bucks yeah. for each person that saw her naked. Yeah. Who's the fucking whore, bitch? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a real conversation? Yeah, real conversation. Yeah. I think I, I think we can all guess who that was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I mean, she's here calling calling strippers whores and this yeah. and that. And I'm like, actually, you're selling your shit yeah. a whole yeah. lot cheaper than they are. Can, can we ask a, a, a good follow-up question? How the hell you got to that dinner table? <laughs> I mean, that's fantastic. Oh, my yeah. friend Nick Hawk owns Koi. Okay. My yeah. dear, dear friend. So, you know, I mean, 
That's uh, and most of his friends, in all fairness, are like, what the fuck are you friends with this dude for? <laughs> but, and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's, they're like, whoa, his story's way more no, interesting. Nick in, all, Nick, in all fairness, he's like, look, that's a stand-up fucking dude. Yeah. Fuck you. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. same way I am about him. Yeah. Like, he's my dear friend. I don't fuck, nobody says a negative thing about him in front of me, ever. Yeah. That's awesome. Same thing about Tamer, right? Like, um, But, uh, you know, Nick, Nick is around like that that whole thing he had a very successful restaurant very you know he's 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 uh you know he's an entrepreneur he's he's in the service industry he's very hospitality builds resorts restaurants everything and so he's around that crowd now we were before that before i got locked up me and nick were around that crowd together we'd be out at the club and this and that and I didn't care who was at the fucking other table, dude. My table was here. Go fuck yourself. Like, I don't care. I didn't care how famous you were, what star you were. Because I always thought, I, I found them to be, when I met them, to be very insecure. And exactly, you know, other than Jack Nicholson. <laughs> this, that dude is exactly what you that think. Are you saying Jack Nicholson's secure? Is that what, yeah, <laughs> you probably won't remember. I mean, he opened a restaurant, the Monkey Bar. Like uh, he was a partner in this on Beverly and Flores or Sweetser in L.A. This has got to be thirty years ago. I was a kid, right? And, um, and I knew a girl that he was dating, so I saw him there, and she was there, and like I met him, and we talked for about forty-five minutes, and the dude was just. Who he was. He was who he was. Yeah, you know, yeah. I Which mean, is rare, unfortunately. He, he, yeah. He's never going to remember. But, I, you know, I had a great time. One of the highlights of my life. It was, you know, he was just shooting the shit the same way we are right now. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. he wasn't. Okay, he wasn't. Well, all right, the flip side, who's the least secure? Give me a give me a give me an LA name of somebody who's just he's 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 not comfortable in his own skin. We got to put you on the spot. I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm going to give you I'm going to answer that with a better I'm going to answer your question with another question. Okay. Tell me another one that's not. So they all are. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. It's a little bit of a cop yeah. out. <laughs> no, but they are and it's it's But really, I have been to LA, so that makes a ton yeah, of sense. It makes sense. They they are and it's really um, you know, the thing that most of them they're they it, if you think about their psychology, right? Like they give up the the super white hot a listers right ninety five percent of the places in the world that we go to they they can't go to and they think that's a fair trade for the five percent of places that they go to that we can't think about that right interesting ninety they can't say what they really think ever they can't go where they really want to go they have to be worried about everybody with a fucking camera. They have to be paranoid about everything on social media. To me, they are the definition of a prisoner. Yeah, I was going to say that's their own prison. Yeah. They're in their own prison, and they they tell themselves like that it's exactly the opposite because I get to go to fucking Anna Wintour's fucking uh, big fucking pat yourself on the back fucking uh, yeah. ball, whatever the fuck it is, yeah. where we're going to have the you know dinosaur theme. Or whatever the fuck it is, yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. Like, the Met, oh, the it's, Met, it's, the Met Gala, right? Yeah, like, yeah. because I could go there, right? I'm not a prisoner, but you can't go 95% other places. You can't say what you really yeah. think. You can't do what you really want. You can't even take the part that you really want if you think it's going to typecast you because you're worried about, I mean, it's just insane, right? And then they have all these psychophants around them who tell them exactly what they want to hear, who are basically. You guys know you're a man. You're a fucking man. They're all robbing them. They might not be doing it with a gun, but they're all fucking robbing them. They're in their ear about do this, do this, oh, yeah. do this. This makes sense. This makes sense. Or they, and they're, you know, 
they're they're it's they're, they're prisoners in their own skin. So them and trust fund kids who you know trust fund kids to me. I'm sure there's a few of you out there that are cool, but most of you are <laughs> fucking not. Um, I respect oh, your parents oh, who made the money. Oh, hold on. <laughs> oh cool. Oh cool. Yeah. Yeah. Trust fund baby. I wish. I, I wish. I respect <laughs> the parent. I respect your parents that <laughs> made the money. This is getting awkward. <laughs> really uh, you know what? Awkward. Look at the time. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. No, but but you've been around them because no. maybe you were one of them. I, I told you. I, I lived in a. I lived in a silver spoon society in Saratoga. I, I mean, you know, the the neighbors, the ortho, uh, well, my father's actually an orthopedic surgeon. The neighbors, the the attorney that you fired, right? I yeah. mean, that's that's the ecosystem that I lived in. But we talked about this um, specifically in the issue of happiness. I can assure you that ninety five percent of Saratoga is not happy. It's not happy. Well, uh, here's here's what I think, and this has been what I've seen of them: is the only problems that trust fund kids have are the ones that they make for themselves, yeah. and they're best skill set that's the only problem is comforting <laughs> and excusing mm. yeah when they get herpes it's because they didn't use a fucking rubber dude yeah. Yeah. god didn't come out of the sky and say you're rich here have a scab on your lip yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well they're Ill, they're Ill, they are ill prepared to to handle adversity but right? they're yeah. but they're so prepared to comfort and excuse adversity so mm. i don't buy that mm. yeah i so i grew i grew up in public school system, right? And the way that we met was I was basically shipped off to all boys private because I was just a crazy human being. And they're like, hey, I think an all boys private will, will cure you. Then I got to all boys private. I'm like, you guys have no idea what's going on over here. These, <laughs> these fucking guys are nuts. <laughs> but it was a lot of trust fund, a uh, lot of trust fund. And our group of friends navigated towards each other because we were we were not that. And yeah. we, we could see how um, it, life just always was was tough for them in their head, right? And we would look at it going, God, you have all, you have the platform to do whatever the fuck you want, right? And yeah. they just couldn't never, they couldn't get out of their own head. It was always confusing it's, it's to all, me. between the ears. Yeah, a lot of it is between the ears. Yeah, so. that's what I thought. I, I always just thought that the, all the problems they have, they make for themselves. And, and they're really good at comforting and excusing and blaming. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten much less patient for mm -hmm. that. And, you know, also a big part of it is, you know, when I was selling drugs in the late 90s, right? Like, I was around a lot of these kids' parents. Mm. I was I was there at 2, 3 in the morning, you know, when they're fucking doing lines or partying and they're saying what they really think, mm. right, in their unguarded moments. You know, I, I spoke Hebrew. It, all the Israelis in L.A. didn't know that for years and years. So I fucking hate them, too. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know what they were yeah. saying. Right. Uh, you know, so it's, it's just, yeah, I, I don't know. To me, that's just the antithesis of everything that, that I try to be and everything that I try to encourage, you know, kids or dudes who are in halfway houses that are coming home or women who are in the halfway house that are coming home. It's the exact opposite of taking responsibility and, and manning or womaning up. And, mm -hmm. and meeting the moment, right? Because the, the other truth about behaving like that is once you accept responsibility, yeah, that's my fault. Guess what also happens? You have control again because now everybody's looking at you for the solution. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Right? And that is where you need to be if you, if you want to be well, if you want to win, things, if yeah. you want to win, which which is kind of an interesting question that we always ask, it's is there is there is there one thing in particular that you feel like a, a real kernel of truth? I know you've had epiphanies, but is there something that you've incorporated into your life that that is that is done either every day or that is just a winning uh, winning diamond in your life? Is there something in particular that you say, you know what, I've I do this every day, or this is something that's that's crucial to winning, to 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 succeeding. 
Yeah, so uh, every morning when I wake up, I pray for about five minutes. Now, some days I don't believe in God, other days I do. Um, if there is a God, he knows that, so I'm not going to be a hypocrite and act like he doesn't. So yeah. I'm just straight up about great. that. It's, it goes back and forth for me. But I do that every day because um, it centers me, and I think about the things that I don't want to do today, whether it's firing someone or, or calling someone to readjust the delivery schedule, whatever, whatever it might be, right? And I start doing those things before I walk out of the house. Mm. It's what I tell everybody. Whether they go your way or not, they're no longer sitting over your shoulder. Your quality of life improves. And the, I guess the golden nugget is, is that um, things that we're not looking forward to or uncomfortable situations or problems are actually life improvement opportunities in disguise. Because once you handle them, even if they don't break your way, they're not hanging over your head anymore. Life is just better. You know, the truth is, if you're going to Disneyland when you're a kid, if you do your homework Friday night before you go, you're going to have a better time Saturday at Disneyland than if you're thinking about all the yeah. homework you got to do when you get home. And that's, you know, that to me is is yeah. the one thing. And and it applies to everywhere. If you if if you just get that shit out of the way, and it doesn't have to go your way. Yeah. It can go against you, but it's gone. Do the hard thing first, and qualify right? It, yeah. And qualify it and own yeah. it as a learning experience or opportunity. Yeah. Readjust it. Yeah. Hey, listen, fuck, you go to court, you find, listen, all, you go to court, right? For three years before that, you're fighting a lawsuit, your lawyer's getting tax bills, this, bills, this, that. It's a fucking nightmare. You go to court, you lose 300 grand. It's over. Even when you lost 300 grand, it's over. You feel better yeah, than it's, it's over. So why did you need the fucking lawyers for three years to take another 300 grand from you? Yeah. Just get it handled right away. Attack those things before they become lawsuits. They're life improvement opportunities in yeah. disguise. There's always a way. And you get it out of the way. You get it off your shoulder. You're not thinking about it in the back of your head. And everything else you do, whether it's a date with someone, it's whether it's a trip, it's better. Yeah. Life improvement opportunities. Well, you brought something up that was interesting, and it is this. And I want, I'd like for you to touch on this with, uh, before we let you get out of here. But the the pivot to PPE and brokering mm, PPE. Yeah. But I want you to equate it to the criminal entrepreneurship and then taking those lessons. Oh. And, you know, I, I, how did that work? Because I think there's a – it's interesting how you describe it, how much is – like I, as I'm running a business and the things that you were doing – in selling ecstasy, I'm like, you, you know, you had a org chart, you had HR, you know, all those things that you're talking about. It's just, they're called different things. Yeah. Right. So you're taking some of those key business principles and now applying them to an above board business in PPE. But you walk me through some of the things that you learned in the criminal world that actually have served you yeah. really well in the, in the, in, in business. Yeah. So for example, when, when we raise money for drop in we didn't look at that as a time to celebrate. We looked at that as what it is, debt. We have to work harder. Yeah. Other startups raise money. It's time to get a new office. We didn't have, never got a new office. We have a shitty little office. Always have. Until the revenue dictates that we can get nicer stuff, the money in the bank says we can, but that's not ours. Yeah. Right? That's, that's an incredible point. That's first. And so, so that's that, and that's real. And that comes from the drug world. Mm. You, you know, you... Your mouth, if you open your mouth, if you take somebody's money, if you take somebody's dope, if you transact in, in that way, you better live up to that. You know, it's like Biggie Small says, strictly for live men, not for freshmen. Yeah. You know, because there's a consequence, yeah. right? Like, so 
when you get somebody's money, that's not time to go spend it. That's time to get the shit you promised him you would get and bring it back to him. And then if everything goes good, you got a little profit left for yourself, right? Yeah. So you learn that in the drug business. Now, as far as PPE, if you want to be successful in drugs, um, as far as PPE goes, when you buy drugs, what are you worried about? Is it good? When you buy PPE, what's everybody worried about? Is it good? Yeah. Right? You have to transship it all over the world. We were sending cocaine to Europe and bringing XC back, right? Logistics, shipping, how are you going to bring it? Air, sea, freight, what? Right? Same thing. It's exactly the same thing. Now, people say, oh, you know, all these guys, they, these fucking jerk-offs with these funds now. Oh, I'm a PPE fund. I'm going to do some of that. Oh, yeah, I got an inspection report. You're a fucking jerk-off, dude. Inspection report, what happens after the inspection? Right. They inspected. What happens after? <laughs> what happens between then? Your inspection means nothing. You're better off if you can pick up X works at a factory. They don't even know what the fuck that is. That means you're getting it like right from the factory. who's publicly yeah. traded, has reputational risk. Nobody else has touched your shit. That's going to be good shit. Better than any inspection report, right? The minute you let a third party touch your shit, you're getting inspection, this, that. Well, what happens after the inspection? Um, you know, and then the other thing is, is quite frankly, like, hey, look, it's a lot of my old friends from back in the day are all over the world. And so I have contacts that other people don't. And, you know, we operate from the position of, hey, we can do this and, and deliver this. And the way we've been successful is like a poker player. We've folded more than half the opportunities that have come our way because if we don't feel we can do it, we don't do it because, again, it goes back to that drug mentality of, hey, don't open your mouth if you can't do it, right, if you're not going to be responsible for it. Whereas everybody else in the PPE business will tell you, yeah, 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 anything to get your money and then try and put it together later. They need a proof of funds. Why? They don't have goods. They want your proof of funds so that they can start. shop it to somebody else. They Oh, they need a proof of life video. I just want to tell you right now, I've sold millions of masks and hundreds of thousands of boxes of gloves. And never once has anybody that's asked for a proof of life video bought anything from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Never yeah. once. Never yeah. once. It's never happened. The minute somebody asks for a proof of life video, that means the transaction's not happening. I right? want to hear the story about the the PPE deal that you did and you're like, yeah, that'll be 30 days. But, you know, for 3600 bucks. Oh, but if you want it in three days, yeah. <laughs> oh, so, so, you know, you like, like FEMA, for example, right? I had a couple of conversations with people that work there. They don't understand the incentivization of what goes on when there's a high demand that outstrips supply, whether it's for good cocaine, right? And what happens when there's, when there's a high demand for that? Somebody gets it, chops it up, and turns it to yellow cocaine. Yeah. So they take one kilo and turn it into three, right? Same thing that happens with gloves and masks, right? Like, hey... This factory can only make a million of high quality, but you want three million? Well, guess what? They're going to make three million, but they're not going to be high quality anymore, right? Same thing with the shipping and the logistics. Hey, you bought gloves from this guy, or you bought masks from this guy, or you bought this from this guy. You think you're the only person he's selling to? If you believe that, you're the kind of dude who believes he's going to get laid in the champagne room. <laughs> <laughs> When? <laughs> that happened once. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, see, I, did, actually, I mean, it didn't. <laughs> that, but that's the exception that proves the rule. I had that happen right. too, right? But that's that's yeah, right. For, for every other time There's I went in there thinking it was going to happen yeah. after that once, I can tell you from personal experience it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. It's expensive. <laughs> yeah, but but okay, whatever. No problem. Right. Girls are there working, and and they should be compensated for their time. Absolutely. And if they give you exclusively their time and not anybody else can see them. You should pay more. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a free country. Nobody's so breaking your arm to go in Business principle right there? Yeah, exactly. Um, and some of them are, are, are great and a lot of fun. 
um, and has nothing to do with sex. I've yes. had a great time at strip clubs many times, right? So anyway, back to logistics, although that's really a distracting subject. <laughs> <laughs> My palms are starting to sweat. Is that weird? Yeah. <laughs> I need a break. It's like, thank God strip clubs are closed. Yeah. Otherwise, Gigi, I'd be home yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, coronavirus, I'm going to be home tonight. They're not closed. <laughs> I'm coming home tonight, baby. I love you. <laughs> this is being recorded on a Saturday, actually. <laughs> um, oh, shit. So... Uh, Logistics, same way. You, you bought a bunch of stuff from someone. There's a limited amount of containers. There's a limited amount of shipping space. Whose stuff's going to need to ship first? There's no line item at FEMA for an envelope. I understand the envelope game. And more importantly, know who to give the envelope to to yeah. get the desired effect. Well, this brings up a great story, and I'm going to throw him right under the bus okay. for a second here. But we... <laughs> I hate waiting in lines, right? I always have. <laughs> and so you bring this guy along. He's, he doesn't ever wait in line. He flashes this NFL card, and he, and he starts talking gibberish to the guy at the front, and it happens so fast and so naturally. You just start walking in. And he, so we've gotten into more places where there's famous people sitting in line because, one, is we act like we're, we don't wait in line. Two, is he flashes his card. It's not, honestly, I don't know if it's his driver's license. It goes so fast. It's just whoop. And you were the player. You played for the 49ers. And, and he's the one with the yeah, car. Well, well, so he's been, he's we're been talking called. about a 38-year-old player. He, he, yeah, he still <laughs> uses that. I haven't played in a long time. He's it's, like, it's he's, like this is the, he's like, this is the kicker for the Chargers. Like, yeah. This guy doesn't wait in line. And yeah. he just whoop, whoop. And then we walk right in. Does the kicker for the kicker for the Chargers waits in line, though? No. Well, of course well, he does. Not when unless he's with he has line. me as an agent. <laughs> oh, that'd be different. Yeah. The, the point is. Although with Herbert now, they. They, they might get a little more respect in the next they Probably not. Not, yeah. not when they're second fiddle to, to yeah, the Rams. But you know what? Yeah. Special teamers, they never get respect. No, special teamers. And they kick, won't. They won't oh, the Rams kicker gets a lot of respect, Johnny Hacker. Well, yeah, that's true. He's a good punter. He's a good punter. Bangs hot chicks, too. Does there he? you go. Okay, well, that's different. He's, yeah. hey, so does McVeigh. Everybody you know on what? the Rams bangs Do you know what that chicks. is? Yeah. That's Smart. the exception to the rule for punters, let me yeah, tell you. Yeah. Most punters. <laughs> yeah, tell you. Anyways. Um, no, that's good. Well, I mean, look, we, we've taken up a lot yeah. of your time. This is this my is, pleasure. This has been awesome. We we probably could wrap out for another three or four hours well, based on Yeah, hopefully days. we'll hit the restaurant, at least hang out a little more until uh, he yeah, has to go right. home. All right. Well, that wraps it up for uh, the second episode of Fuck You Friday. Lewis, first, I want to thank you for being here. And thank you to all our subscribers uh, and listeners out there. Please uh, go ahead and like and do whatever you need to do to uh, continue to watch this. I appreciate it. And uh, there we are. Yo, uh, and it wouldn't be a Fuck You Friday without saying Fuck You Friday. So. <laughs> yeah. Fuck off. And uh, for Lewis, sometimes it's Fuck Me Friday, right? Okay. Well, I'm the one who's getting fucked on Friday. <laughs> Boy, this is taking an interesting turn. Yep. <laughs> thank Tune you very in. much, everyone. Appreciate it.